straight bout it I'm not pouting Break through walls and climb it mountains If you want it, scream it loud What's up superstars? Welcome to the Brain Tainment Podcast. Listen, if you're someone who wants to build more confidence within yourself, your ability to perform, to execute, to build skills, or to just feel better, or if you're someone who wants to architect a new empowering identity, this is the platform for you. Listen, we have all kinds of guests on this program from the psychology space, neuroscience, sports, as well as cultural icons and influences where we get to pick apart their story and learn a bit more about them. So be sure to subscribe. I hope you get value from this show. If you do, if you do enjoy it, please, please, please do me a favor. Put it on your socials, share it with friends and families who you think this message could help or they would enjoy. And be sure to share the love and tag me on those platforms. We'd love to get some feedback. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to part one of my conversation with Dotsy Bouch. This was a really interesting chat. And we split into two because we went down the rabbit hole of two different areas of conversation. Now, this first one you're listening to, part one, is all about obsessive behaviors and how we can leverage addictive personalities, addictive behaviors to our advantage. How can we turn that to something productive? And Dotsie's story is a really fascinating one. She shares her experience with anorexia and having a really obsessive relationship with food, of course. Um, And she shares how she was able to break that and turn that into something productive. She ultimately goes on to win a silver medal in the Olympics, of course, which is crazy. So she shares that story. But we talk about how we can leverage suffering to create a sense of drive and how how to cultivate that relationship. She talks about her passion and her love for writing. She talks about how often we're all driven by some sort of inner pain. She talks about how to reconnect the body and mind and how often in the moments of addiction and obsessive behaviors, we're not actually thinking, we just kind of go for it. It doesn't actually serve us. So we unpack a lot in a very short period of time. So strap in. If you relate to what I've just shared, I think you are going to get a lot out of this episode. If you enjoy it, of course, please share it with a friend, put up on your socials, tag me, tag Dotsy, and enjoy part one of this conversation. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Brain Tainment Show. Today, I'm really lucky to be joined by a brilliant guest, Olympic silver medalist, advocate and speaker, founder of the nonprofit Switch for Good, uh, which we'll unpack a little bit later in the conversation, and someone who just really has a powerful story of overcoming addiction, uh, but perhaps most notably doing so in a way where she was able to channel and direct those behaviors, those obsessive, addictive behaviors towards something positive, towards something productive. And that's that's where we'll start this morning. But we're going to split this episode into two, which will be really cool. Firstly, we'll explore Dotsie's story and how we can all leverage our own addictive traits and behaviors to our advantage for productive pursuits. And then for part two, we'll dive into the world of veganism and living a plant-based lifestyle, which uh, you know, I'm actually quite excited to, to get to and unpack and come from a place of curiosity. So a bit to get through. Um, but firstly, with that all said, welcome to the show, Dotsy Bausch. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. We're just chatting off air, um, having some fun. And, you know, I can tell you're an absolute legend already. I've had a little bit to do with you, you know, behind the scenes, just in terms of like going into down the rabbit hole of your story. And you know, I found it really fascinating. I think there's lots, lots of value we'll get from um, this chat today. Firstly, Bouch, did I say that correctly? Is that how I pronounce your surname? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so let's maybe start with some context. Um, you know, you ultimately go on to, to win a silver medal in the Olympics, which is no small feat. But for those that aren't familiar, mm-hmm. um, perhaps just give us the backstory of what your life looked like prior to that. And I suppose how you 
ultimately end up jumping on a bike? What does that all look like? Mm-hmm. Well, my life before that looked well, except for the 10 years leading up to the training and you know, all the training. And the of course. Yeah. Prior to that, <laughs> it looked like uh, nothing you would ever imagine an athlete's life to look like. I, I, I grew up, I grew up in the South in the United States in Kentucky. And uh, I really uh, have uh, no one to blame on uh, for all of my misgivings and all of my um, issues, uh, but myself, because I have a wonderful family, parents that are were incredibly supportive, still married, uh, a beautiful sister that's seven years younger. And I really kind of grew up in this idyllic, um, you know, Southern household and had, um, you know, kind of really didn't ever want for anything. You know, we were, we were middle-class and, uh, we really loved, uh, being together. And so as I traversed, uh, through high school, uh, and then on to college towards the end of my college career, which I went to, um, went over to the East coast to educated, uh, what I thought was going to be a better education that I could get in the South, but I don't know if that's true or not, but I went to Villanova university outside of Philadelphia. And towards the end of that, uh, my like middle mid junior year, I really started struggling deeply with, uh, feelings of inadequacy in, 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 Hopefully you edit this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, sorry, but don't worry. Oh, I'm fumbling all the okay. time. <laughs> I think Hello. people seem to enjoy it. <laughs> no, right. They like the blunders, right? It's like, makes us real. Um, inadequacy is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and just feelings of, there's just a lot of self-loathing going on, mm. a lot of self-hatred. And it was, it was born, uh, I, I'm learning more now. I think it was born... Uh, out of fear and out of anxiety and worry that I wasn't ever going to measure up to equal anything in life. And and that's kind of how uh, it started. And so as I'm traversing these feelings, I began to feel uh, extremely out of control because all of this, all, all of this was scaring me and I didn't really know who to turn to or what to do about it. And so I started to control my food as a way to feel like I had some kind of control over something in my life. Uh, so that started, it kind of crept in. It started a bit slow, but it really took on a life of its own quite quickly and turned into uh, full-fledged anorexia. And I spent um, a lot of time in and out of the hospital and uh, facilities and uh, inpatient, outpatient, because it spiraled into eating about 200 calories a day. I finally got it down far enough, which was a mini muffin and a black coffee with just one packet of sugar. If anyone's wondering what 200 calories is. Hmm. Uh, So it, it was that by that point, I had all the physical characteristics of uh, a very sick human. My hair was falling out. My skin was turning gray. My teeth were uh, turning colors as well. And I was really just a shell of myself. And when you're not nourishing your body, uh, it, you know, it it starts to shut down to preserve itself. Uh, Anorexics that do die from the disease, uh, they, they usually end up dying of a heart attack because your body starts to eat its own organs. Uh, luckily, and obviously that didn't happen to me, but I was going down that path and I was um, 
got into a place where I really couldn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't hold a job anymore. I couldn't be social. I just remember spending almost all day, every day, uh, just in, in my house, in, in bed. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't really even read because my brain wasn't functioning that well. So that was, it, 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 was, it was obviously a, a really, really dark time that ended in um, a couple of suicide attempts. One was, was with pills and the second one was um, running out in the middle of the 76 freeway in, in Philadelphia. And, and that was that just, you know, just turning point that jolted me into this disease is going to probably kill you. And the reaction of that second suicide attempt, because the first one my parents didn't really know about, but their reaction to that second one really gave me, uh, infused me with enough to try to potentially see if I could get better from anorexia. That was like, that was what was in my head. I was like, I know that I probably won't ever get better, but I've got to try for them because if I die, they, I want them to know that I at least tried, which is obviously right. really skewed process thinking when you say it out loud, because they're not going to care whether I tried or not if I'm gone. But mm. I really was like, you have to at least give this to them. I wasn't even thinking I'm giving it to myself. I'm thinking, you know, so uh, I, I started to um, reach out to therapists, went through many as anybody who's been in therapy, it takes a little while to find the one you connect with and the one that you really, you know, I needed to find one that I knew they were not going to let me get away with my crap because I lied to the first, you know, three therapists that I sat down with. But long story short, I was able to uh, connect with one that really connected with me and um, she, we, we, we got to work, we got to work and I was, re- I was ready to get to work. You know, I just kind of thought, you know, I'm not going to really, I think every, every anorexic I've ever talked to since then. And there's been a lot, uh, cause I do a, a lot of mentorship. Uh, yeah. you just have this sense of, I won't ever really be a hundred percent, but maybe I could be a lot better or a little better and I could live a life, you know? So I didn't believe that it would mm-hmm. just, on, just on that. Do you think, and that's really interesting. Do you think people, whether it's uh, people experiencing anorexia and going through that disease or, you know, I wonder if there's in, the same parallels could apply to other situations, but do you think people maybe who are feeling that, that I'm never going to get to hundred percent, almost just stop them from trying. It's like, what's, is this even worth it? Oh, hell yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, that's what stopped me for, uh, you know, a while there for sure. It's, it's right. Because you, you really can't, I don't think you could be as successful at anything without some hope. Right. And so and if you don't have any hope, yeah. That's what I'm getting to. I see so many people stuck, whether it's something as dramatic as experiencing a disease like that, or um, even perhaps not, but like people just getting stuck in that, like that lack of hopefulness and it plays out in so many different ways. So it's interesting that you're like at that place um, mentally, you're just starting to flirt with a little bit of hope, but it's like, what, what did you do with that? Like, how did you, uh, I imagine the therapy would have been helpful. Were there certain practices that you sort of put in place to, I guess, to keep yourself, uh, not accountable, but almost just keep um, a reminder to yourself of like, the, any progress is good progress and recognize it's not just a, you know, a throwaway platitude, but like genuinely any progress is going to make me feel better. Um, and perform better. Yeah. And do, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. It, 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 not at first, at first I just was like, okay, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to try, I'm going to try hard. And I've always had a, 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 a pretty solid work ethic, which is why I was also a successful anorexic, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to starve yourself. So, you know, it, to me, it was work. And so when I started with Chris, who was my therapist, um, I, I just got very committed to the work. And what I loved about her, she was a, she was a tool oriented therapist, right? So she didn't sit there like the other ones had with their yellow legal pad and their pen, like looking at you like you're crazy and taking, you know, voracious amount of notes. Mm. She just didn't write anything down. She looked at me, she worked with me and she had a, uh, I always had homework. And there were a fair amount of tools that she gave me. So if this, then this, if this, try this, if you're going to, if you think you're going to, you know, abstain from food, you have to do this first and then you still can abstain from food. She had, she had, so that's, I really just leaned into the work. Yes. And as we were doing the work, hope started to unfold because I was getting better. Mm. So I thought, well, I wonder, then I started wondering how much further I could go with the getting better. You know, I started to open up the possibility that, could it be all the way? Mm, interesting. And so do you think, I think I've, I've, I've heard you reflect on this. Is there a part of that, um, whether, whether you call it obsession, ad- addictive behavior, like was there a part of that experience, um, I suppose, that then translated into how much effort you put into your cycling? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So that, so the end of that story with the therapist was I was, I was much, much, much better and able to kind of thrive and be in my life again, be a participant in my own life. And uh, she said to me one day on one of our last sessions, you know, she said, Dotsie, I want you to, you know, I want you to be able to, you know, find an activity or a sport or an exercise. Cause I had told her from day one, if I can't move my body in a healthy way again, cause I had, you know, I really will not consider myself well or healed. Um, Cause I definitely had part of anorexia of the over exercise disorder back, back then. So she said, I want you to find something, but I don't want you to do anything that has the the negative context from the past, which would be, you know, the treadmill, the Stairmaster, the elliptical. I used to do that for eight hours a day in the gym. So pick something outside. I'm living in Los Angeles by that period of time. And it's, you know, 75 and sunny every day. So I said, well, what if I got a bicycle? You know, that sounds kind of fun and freeing and enjoying. And how, how old are you at this point? Because you're you're not like 15, right? Like you're no, exactly. mid-20s, right? Yeah. 26. 26, 26. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, I, 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 I find that like, and I just, and sorry to cut you off there, I just want to dra- like really drive this home for people tuning in. When I was going through your story, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like you're picking up the bike. You ultimately, you win a silver medal in the Olympics, but you don't really explore cycling until you're 26. And there's so many people that I know, I mean, I'm 31 now um, that, that are my age, but even like early twenties, mid twenties who have almost just like fallen victim to this idea of like, fuck, it's too late. I can't do this. I can't do that. Even if they're not sure what they want to do, they've almost just like bought into the belief that like, I'm never going to find something that I can sink my teeth into something that I can get excellent at something that's going to bring me a, you know, a deep level of fulfillment. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to highlight that caveat. So you're 26 at this time. Yeah. But you know, when you're 26, I mean, you know, it feels super young. So I didn't know. (laughs) It's it's also sounds young now, but I'm I'm well aware that, 
it's, uh, it's, you know, normally I would say it, the bike would have been picked up, you know, 15 years before that in terms of, you know, when my competitors probably picked up the bike. So it was a bit late and mm. I was very technically scary, like to everyone I rode with. Cause I, you know, I was riding with people who grew up on a bicycle. So they had incredible coordination skills and, and, you know, technique. Mm. And, and I didn't, you know, I was just kind of like, it was like a bull in a China shop. I was I've just started riding by the way, cause I'm training for a triathlon and we won't do, we don't derail too much so when you're talking about like form uh please i understand <laughs> i'm hopeless yeah. and i'm you know some folks that i'm trying to connect with to ride with i'm like how are you going as fast as you are when i'm cycling anyway conversation for another time but i know what you're talking mm. about there so just to go back sorry um your you pick up the bike um and then do you like immediately start channeling i guess that like inclination yeah. to just go 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 towards this like new pursuit you know i did i i've always had a, a really big uh curiosity aspect to my personality and mm. it, when i look back it was really the curiosity that drove it because as you mentioned i was 26 and so as I start riding and as I start doing some group rides with some other people, and then I did a, ch uh, a charity ride, which was uh, like a 700 mile jaunt from San Francisco to Los Angeles over six days. Uh, and I'm in the front groups with the guys, but that doesn't really make sense because I've kind of just started and it, they, they, that in, ends with, you know, Dotsie, you might want to try a race or something. I think you might have some talent here. I can't, you know, if you really just started and I'm riding a mountain bike on the road, you know, this whole, this whole thing. Yeah. It was just, I just kept being, feeling like I was fueled by the curiosity of, huh, what's next? Huh, that's weird that I could have some talent in this. Oh, I tried a race. The first race I did was a disaster. I got, I got like 13th or 14th or something. And I crashed out almost the entire Peloton. It was pouring rain and uh, it was, a, it was a mess. And I remember calling my mom after it was over. I'm like, well, we can check the bike racing thing off the list. Cause that was sucked. I hated every second of it. And then the next day I woke up and I was like, where's the next bike race? Cause I just thought, okay, Wait, I can't, I'm still curious to see what can happen. I have to at least make good on this disaster of a race I just did. And that just kept, you know, that just kept catapulting itself into mm. the next, to the next, the next. And I just kept thinking at one, well, at one point I got to where, you know, I thought I have to try this now and pursue this now. Cause this is just about, I'm, I'm right about the time um, before I do a national a big national caliber race where the U.S. national team took notice. And I'm, I'm right around that time. And I think to myself, you know, I can't do this later, this mm. potential to be a professional cyclist. Like I can't, you know, go back to work. Cause I had, I had worked and, and was making a good living. And then I, now I'm a cyclist. I'm making zero living, literally zero living doing what I'm doing. So there was definitely a strong pull to kind of go back to what I was doing before, which was art department production. And in LA is, it was a great living back then. But it was like, I can do that later. I can pick up art department production at mm. 50 if I want to. This is not something I can. So it j I just kept driving towards seeing what was possible. Mm, that curiosity, you're talking a language that I really resonate with, right? Like on this platform, I'm always talking about approaching things with curiosity and just seeing where that goes. It's a really good place to operate from. I think what's um, what I want to unpack is, so that's a really good foot in the door, I suppose, is to follow that curiosity and just... Um, you know, it's a really good step one, but ultimately, particularly to get to the levels that you did, um, you, you run up against suffering inevitably, physically, mentally, mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and you have to be able to have those conversations with yourself to, to move through that. And I think I heard you talking about, you know, if you were going to, you were enjoying cycling for those things you've touched on, you know, getting outdoors and being in nature, um, you know, you have that curiosity, start to fall in love with the sport. Um, but then I've heard you reflect on how you recognize that you would have to get good at suffering if, <laughs> if you want to perform at the levels which you ultimately go on to do. So, um, yeah. What exactly, what exactly do you mean by that? And do, do you think there's an opportunity for people, whatever it is that they're working towards, some sort of sport, you know, career, showing up in a certain way, um, there's going to be a level of suffering that comes. How yeah. do you, like, how, what's, your, what's your thoughts around that relationship? Well, <laughs> I was already really good at suffering as right. an anorexic, yeah. right? So that, that was, um, I mean, that was my jam. Right. Like I could, so I, I, I would kind of get off a little bit and have a lot of pride in how much I could restrict. Yep. So whatever people have been through in their lives, whether it's an eating disorder or a million other things that we struggle with and we fight our demons on, because that's what an eating disorder is. It's just acting out on your inner demons. People think it's about food, but it's not. It's just like any alcoholism, drug addiction, sex, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's just really acting out on your, your demons and your inner pain. And so I was already really good at, at the suffering aspect. So when the suffering came on the bike, it was almost like it was, I welcomed it in a mm. way because I knew that it was gonna end. Like your own, I mean, a bike race is only gonna be three or four hours. An yeah. interval session, as you know, in training, you're only gonna do eight intervals at two minutes each. Or what, I, mean, I knew what the end was. And when I was really sick, I didn't see an end as we talked about before. Yeah. So it was almost this new, I could take the suffering to, to almost a new heights in cycling because I knew it was gonna end. So it was again, very curious to see how deep I could go, mm. how much suffering could I withstand uh, and how, you, you know, you as you know, with really, really deep suffering, you go into an almost euphoric state if you yeah. can reach that, that, you know, really deep into it. And so then that gets addictive. So this is, this sounds like a drug addiction now, but it, it, it was this, it was really cool to see how much I could stretch myself to suffer harder than the next person. Yeah. Um, and, but I knew it was going to end. So I think that's what kept me going with it. It was never going to be as bad as was before. Yeah, definitely. I reckon if you're, yeah, that idea of being able to like to build a narrative or a, di a dialogue around intentional suffering, it almost yeah. gets people out of this like default suffering, you know, with idle hands, I suppose is how I would describe it. So, you know, you've explained that, which I can only imagine is just scratching the surface of your experience with anorexia. I know that you had some issues with drugs as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I know, I know well, some of the people that tune into this show anyway might be able to resonate to some extent, particularly with like, you know, recreational drug, drug use. And then that then turns to like habitual, um, whether it's addictive, I don't know, but um, certainly more consistent than is, than is good for uh, anyone. Um, and in large part, my personal interpretation anyway, because I've been down that rabbit hole, is like there's also a form of suffering to that as well. Uh, when, and I guess the point I'm trying to highlight is like, if we're not able to direct that suffering into something, particularly with the body where it's like intentional, you can do something, then we're going to, we're going to find ways to suffer 
whether we even realize it or not, and a lot of people don't, that's a whole other can of worms. We're going to find ways to suffer regardless, um, but with, with no upside. And I feel like what you've been able to do and what I want people to recognize is if you can direct that in a way, it's not only will you start to achieve or perform or whatever it is that you, you know motivates you, but I mean, I, I would imagine to some extent when you do get off the bike, when you win the medal, obviously, but even just in your train, when you get off, there must be a sense of like, fuck yeah, I'm awesome. And like a real sense of like <laughs> credibility as this like healthy byproduct from channeling uh, this like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pushing yourself and suffering in the right way. So that's my little synopsis. Does that make, does that resonate with, with your. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I'd said, fuck yeah, I'm awesome. Like a lot more times than (laughs) I did, but yeah, I think I felt like that at the Olympics a little bit and a couple of other races, but it's interesting, you know, when you're pursuing anything, it's like, it's just the human condition to just kind of berate yourself and go back to what could have been better. Even if you cross the finish line first. So uh, looking back though, that is, is most, is the most excellent advice for people. Just stop more than once a day and say, fuck yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah. No matter what yeah. you're doing, because shit, it, life is really hard and we're, we're, we're giving it our best, aren't we? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I mean, something that <laughs> I want to write that down and yeah, say right. that to myself. <laughs> that really is, I love it. <laughs> I, might, I might come up one day in one of those quotables, like on an Instagram post from me. Um, I love it. But look, <laughs> I want to respect your time and I want to talk a bit about the idea of veganism and plant-based in a moment. But before we do that, and I think the, the reason I was sort of harping on that point earlier about having like intentional suffering in a good way, and then obviously the healthy byproduct of that is you know, feeling really good about yourself, is this idea, this idea of idle hands. And I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, I actually heard you reflect on, um, you know, in those moments of like addiction and not, it might not be an issue with food or alcohol or drug abuse, but it could even be social media addiction. Like some of the stuff that's relevant in today's culture. Um, but we do it. We don't, we don't, you were talking about how we don't think we just go for it. And actually mm-hmm. what stands out in my mind, and I think some of our listeners will really resonate with this is you're talking about just going for a line of cocaine at a nightclub. Um, and you just sort of do it. And if you're happy just to sort of share on that, just for a moment, I just think it's really useful and really relevant. It's like, you almost just do it without thinking. Um, and again, I, I, I would argue that that in la- is in large part because there's no, there's nothing productive that people are really channeling this like natural inclination to like, um, just, yeah, I guess in some ways be addictive, I suppose. But what, what exactly did you mean by that? And um, do you think there's an opportunity for people to, to recognize that in their own lives, whether it is, like I said, cocaine, other drugs, alcohol, social media, um, you know, poor language, these like addictive behaviors we do on autopilot. Mm. Wow. I don't know that I've ever really, I don't think I've dove into that in, in my head in terms of the autopilotness of addictive behavior, because it's, you're true. I mean, there's times when you're actively pursuing it, if you're mm. buying the cocaine or you're thinking about where you're going to buy the cocaine. But then, like you said, it is a bit of autopilot once you have it and then you're just doing it. Um, it must be just a component of any type of addictive behavior, right? You almost get the high off of planning it. And then you get, you know, the actual whatever high it is, in this case, the 
drug off of just the passiveness of it. Mm. Uh, and that's what you're, but you're just always chasing that feeling and you can get that feeling in a variety of different ways. Mm. Uh, and then that's what, you know, more sober living looks like, right. Is, is, is finding fine. You still want that same high, right. But just not, not by doing the lines. Cause you know, that's a destructive path. So, you know, finding it's, out what that is. Yeah. It's so destructive. And the reason I just bring that up again, is just, uh, like this, I feel like, and it doesn't have to be grandioso, but having a sense of direction and purpose that you can channel that kind of energy towards, I just think is really important. Um, and yeah, I can only imagine how that, you know, served you to, to go on and, uh, and put in the work that was required. Just the last piece on, on this conversation before we dive into the, um, the, the veganism and that lifestyle um, idea is, is this reflecting on um, inner pain. I've heard you talk about how we're all driven by inner pain and, I would say that most people probably just don't recognize that or they don't want to. Um, do you think that's, uh, what we, what are your thoughts around that? So how, do you think that you've been able to leverage the inevitable in a pain to some extent in a productive way? Yeah, the, I definitely got a lot, asked a lot of questions in the media around the time of Olympics if, and even before if I was replacing kind of one painful addiction with another. Mm. And I always said, maybe, you know, I don't know, possible, but I'm going to do this. If this cycling is the painful addiction I've replaced, like almost dying with, I'm going <laughs> to keep going with the cycling thing. You know, I, I tried to not get too hung up in, you know, if that was the case or if it was not the case, because okay. I knew what I was pursuing was something that I deeply loved and brought me so much joy and passion. And I got to see the whole world on mm. a bicycle, which is just the best window ever to, you know, to see the world through. Um, so, but I, you know, even in what I'm doing today, which is running a nonprofit, uh, I, I do, I think at the core of me is that is that driven by pain because there's a I'm certainly driven to do what I'm doing now by um, channeling and really truly feeling the pain that you know billions and billions of of non-human animals go through day daily. So it is that pain and that agony and that misery and that suffering that fuels my work every day. Yeah. So I, I do, I think that I, I'm, I'm, I'm venturing to guess that it's, that it's somewhat common throughout the human experience. I think yeah, so too. To be driven from that. Yeah, definitely. And that's it. We'll talk an off air about my personal journey. And now, mm -hmm. you know, with my head trauma, I've spoken a little bit on the show and now, you know, that's been the, the psychological ups and downs, my, you know, experience with depression, anxiety, um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me off the back of sharing those conversations as well, people going through similar experiences. So it's like now I feel this like deep purpose almost and mission um, from that pain rather than just sitting with it, mm -hmm. which, yeah, and there's other things as well from childhood and what have you. But it's now like, I guess it's just the awareness to reflect on that and put it towards something that is meaningful. And I feel like that's something that you've been, out, been able to really do and continue to do and, and what I want people just to consider anyway it, rather than just sitting in that inner pain and marinating in it unnecessarily it's like okay yeah sure there might be some stuff there but what does that mean giving it meaning completely changes how we feel on a daily basis 
Hey guys, just interrupting to let you know that the second part of this conversation, we dive into the world of uh, plant-based living, veganism, something Dots is very passionate about. So the second chat, uh, or the second part to this chat can be found on part two, which will release simultaneously. So you should be able to access that in podcasts, wherever you get them. But that is all for this part of the conversation. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate the support you guys are showing to this platform. If you got some value from this episode, if you enjoyed it, please do share it on your socials with friends and family. Really helps grow the channel uh, and the mission and everything we're trying to do here with Braintainment. So spread the love. I would be forever grateful. And of course, if you got some real insights from this episode, hit me up, find me on social, shoot me a message. I'd love to engage and have a chat with you guys. So that's it for now. Until the next episode, thanks again.